This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your host for today is Summit Racing's Paul Sokolis with special guest, Ralph Moody Jr. Here we go. Hey, On All Cylinders Podcast fam, I've got a question for you. Are you in the mood to talk about some vintage racing and motorsports history? Knowing full well that I can't see or hear your responses, I'm going to assume that answer is a resounding yes. And guess what? You're in luck. Um, Because joining me on the show is Ralph Moody Jr. And I'm sure a lot of gearhead ears just perked up because of the name Moody. Yes, his father is Ralph Moody Sr. of uh, Holman Moody fame. And more importantly, he's got a really cool restoration project in his shop he's working on right now. We'll get to all that in a moment. But for starters, Ralph, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, uh, suffice it to say, anybody with a last name of Moody is welcome on the show anytime. But, uh, you know, I kind of alluded to it in the introduction. But uh, for those folks that don't know the whole history behind the uh, Moody automotive legacy, Ralph, can you kind of start us at the ground floor? Well, it, it, I have to admit, most of it started with my dad. He was, uh, he was originally born in 1917. He was originally grew up in a family. His dad owned a garage, a gas station, which back in the 20s was also had maintenance activity. So that's where he learned about cars. By the, say, the 1930s, 40s, into the 30s, he left out on his own to go make his fortunes and went working at different places. And uh, he ended up working on a farm where the farmer's daughter was my future mother. So they met on the farm years ago and he got involved in racing one day because some of the other folks on the farm wanted to go see the midgets run in New England because it was popular in the late 30s. He didn't know what that was, so he went. He was hooked, and then uh, he helped on some of the cars and finally became a driver on some of those cars. And then he met up with a gentleman by the name of Braddy Winters, who was in a neighboring town there in Massachusetts, who owned a large garage and was a racer. Uh, the guy was a self-taught metallurgist. He got up with him, and they ended up building their own midgets and won a ton of races in the uh, in the midget series up in New England over the next 10, 15 years. Then he went off to World War II. He was in a tank in World War II in Germany, came back. And when they came back, the racing scene in New England changed from midgets, which was very popular pre-war. It went to stock cars. And so the same team got back together, and they started racing stock cars and also were very successful in local tracks up there. Then to connect that story back to my mom, during the war, she became a nurse and was a whack or whatever. And then after the war, she was working in the hospital and her boss came to her and said, you know, uh, we've got an elderly gentleman who is taking uh, his private train to Florida and he's got a mansion down there and he needs an aide. Would you like to be, would you like to move to Florida? You know, and she's like, yeah. So she went to Florida. My dad chased after her. They ended up getting married. The next, uh, They came back to New England for marriage. And at any rate, they settled in uh, Fort Lauderdale. And he started racing in Fort Lauderdale. You could race more days a week there and, and into the winter. Very successful down there. And then he had raced on the beach at Daytona in the 50s. And Ford had a driver quit. And at the time, the head of the Ford Racing Division in the, in the mid-50s was Pete DiPaolo, who won the Indianapolis 500 back in the 20s, 30s, whatever. At any rate, he hired my dad as a driver for Ford. And so he was a factory driver for Ford in the late 50s. And uh, he won five races during that stint as a cup driver. And then he was also helping build the cars and maintain them and, and update them and change them. And, and he was really good on suspensions and knew a lot about engines as well. So he was on the Ford factory team. And in 1957 or 58, I think it was, 
Ford and Chevy got together and signed an agreement uh, not to race, not to support racing because of some accidents with kids and hot rod cars and stuff. So they agreed not to compete. Ford decided to sell all their businesses, all the racing business to someone. And my dad uh, connected with John Holman. They didn't have quite enough money, so he mortgaged uh, his airplane that he had. He had a tri-pacer or something at the time. So he got enough money, and they bought the entire racing operation for like $10,000. So that's how Holman and Moody started back in the late 50s. Ford was out of racing for two or three years, and then, of course, everybody got back into it in the early 60s. And so that's when really the money started pouring in through Holman and Moody. They became basically the distributor for Ford all through the 60s and into the early 70s before Ford pulled out of racing again. Now, of course, they're back in racing, but during that period of time, they did basically everything for Ford. They built most of the GT40 parts, all the engines for the GT40s because they were 427s, what they were using in NASCAR, although those were dry sump. They weren't legal in in NASCAR, but uh, they built boats. They built offshore racing boats. They built uh, all the engines for things like that. So they were in a variety of things. Can-Am, NASCAR was their big signature thing, but that's what uh, they were basically the the outlet for Ford racing parts, and they would sell anything to anybody. So it was they built something like 80 or 90 car race cars a year. So it was like in 1960, in the late 60s, mid to late 60s, they had, I think, over 300 employees at the Charlotte airport. They also uh, bought a building down in Miami, and they had a race boat shop down there. Had partnered with Bill Strop out in California, just south of Los Angeles, and owned part of that business where they were doing Broncos and off-road racing, Baja racing. So they had employees in all those locations at one point in time. So it's a pretty massive operation at its peak. Now, at what point did you enter the story? Um, as a young man, uh, did you have a broom in your hand uh, sweeping up shavings around the shop? Oh, yeah. They, they, you know, I have I have a check from Holman Moody, and then I was sweeping floors or doing something, you know, minor. So I was around. I got to see a lot of that. I remember them uh, going over and see where they were building the race cars and stuff. I was fascinated with it. I later became a mechanical engineer because I was interested in that. But then uh, my dad decided to leave. He split from John Holman in 71, 72, and he started another business called Ralph Moody Incorporated. And then right about the time I got a license, so I was like 16 at that time. I probably worked more hours in that shop, in his new shop, than in the old shop, but I was familiar with both. He started uh, some of the the team, uh, like Waddell Wilson and a few of the other team, engine builders. They built an engine shop in the new building, and they were building race car engines there as well as doing. The front of the building was tune-ups and tires. You know, the back of the building was a race shop. They had race cars back there. They had, you know, people bringing street cars in. So uh, that's where I, I learned a lot of the trade. And then by the time I had graduated high school, I was itching to drive a race car. So my mom was my car owner. So I finally convinced her that, that we were going to go in. So I ran the baby grand circuit for a couple of years at four cylinders. So. And then I had, I had tested some of the, the cup cars out of Charlotte and things like that. But, you know, at that point in time, my mom said, well, you know, either get a sponsor or get a job. So I got a job. <laughs> so that's how the uh, my, my engagement in racing was on. But I, I had... Uh, a lot of time on the workbenches in the shop, helping some of the other teams, size engine heads and stuff. A lot of the stuff now you buy is pre-made. There's not as much, or the customization is done on CNC machines. Back then it was hand done. So there were a lot of uh, a lot of finds, running dynos, things like that. So I was involved in the shop, especially during the summers when I was out of school. Certainly working alongside top tier race teams, building engines is one way uh, for someone to enter the gearhead hobby, as they say. But as much as I'd like to talk in general terms about automotive racing history and stuff like that, we're here to focus on one specific vehicle, the Ford Torino Talladega. Together with its uh, corporate cousin, the Mercury Cyclone Spoiler 2, 
It was one of the two blue oval backed cars that uh, kind of competed in the NASCAR Aero Wars uh, of the uh, late 1960s. You happen to be in possession of a really, really special one. Can you tell us about it? From my understanding, uh, that car was built in late, uh, I'll say late 68 September, I think was the, the month in Atlanta. At least the shell of the body was. Ford used to send uh, bodies in white, what they call basically a basic shell, to Home and Moody to make race cars out of. I don't know the specific details of that. I do know I've been told that that car sat on a surface plate at Home and Moody for almost a year. And that particular body was the template car for the race cars. So basically, they made the templates off that car to make the race car bodies for Talladega. So it was one of the, I, I will say there might have been, I remember one prototype car that they built that was white. That was a, the first Talladega. It was a, a, the driving Torino that they can modif- modify the fenders at the front end on to make it a Torino. Uh, and that very first one, if I remember correctly, there was uh, some guys in the shop and they were fixing it up to take it to Detroit to show the team at Ford. And I don't know if it's that particular one or a different one, but they, they left the shop one night. Of course, they had the whole hood open and doing all this work and body work on the front of it. They got some trash in the carburetor. The thing stalled on the railroad tracks and a train destroyed it. So that was one of Talladega that was destroyed. <laughs> the train didn't do really good work on it. But the other one sat on the, the one that's here that I have was originally sitting on a surface plate as a template car. And then uh, after they had built the race cars for 69, late 68, early 69, my dad decided, well, you know, I'll put it together, make a street car. I don't know why he decided that, but he had a friend at Ford, Don Sullivan, who originally uh, helped with the design of the flathead Ford engine. And he was also involved in some of the small block Ford engine designs. He was uh, pretty high up on the R&D side at Ford. And he sent him a bunch of parts for it, uh, including the engine, which apparently had a different cam in it than the original you know, the stock one. I guess they made a couple different cams for the 428s. And in, in the process of rebuilding this one, I had Larry Wallace over at Home Moody regrind this cam so we didn't change the lobes on it. I had another gentleman that worked for my dad over at Ralph Moody. He uh, was a certified ASE engine builder and he does nothing but older cars. He's the guy that rebuilt the engine for it. He used Larry and a few other components to put it back together. So if I'm hearing this correctly, not only do you have one of the earliest Torino Talladegas ever made, the one in your possession is the actual car they used to base all the NASCAR track cars off of, correct? It is a prototype. And if you go to the Talladega Registry website, there's uh, Rick Fleener keeps that site up and he has a record of all the serial numbers of cars. I think there might be one or two prototypes that have an earlier serial number than mine. But uh, this one was what, one of the ones that was used as part of the template for the race cars. So there's only, I think, two or three that actually have uh, Ram Air hood scoops. Most of them were one color, three colors they made. This one's uh, completely black, all black, all gloss black. So it has no flat black hood like most of the Talladegas did. It has a Ram Air. It, surprisingly, it doesn't have staggered shocks. Uh, most of the Talladegas had staggered shocks on the rear. This one doesn't. That was so early they didn't have, have that in that particular model at the time. Some folks may not be fully aware of the historical significance of a car like this. So can you kind of explain how the Torino Talladega came to be in in the context of NASCAR racing? Yeah, and and I'll go back a little further because I think this is interesting. Holman and Moody, my dad was always involved with aerodynamics pretty heavily. And so uh, Holman and Moody had actually built, took some Ford Falcons and made fastbacks out of those in the early 60s. And they raced them outside of NASCAR, some leagues where you could run modified vehicles. And they were very successful. I think they built three of them. And if you go on the internet, you can find these uh, Ford Falcons with the, the fastbacks. 
Then in the, I'd say in early 61, if you remember the Ford Starliner, and at one point in time, they had a, a optional faster back roof. Ford did some uh, speed testing out at Bonneville with that thing. They actually took the original roof off, put a fastback Bonneville on it. They had, uh, Ford had developed a new engine for racing in NASCAR. It was like 480 cubic inches. It got outlawed before it ever got on there. They took that car with that engine out to Bonneville and ran close to 200 miles an hour with a 61 Starliner on a 10-mile oval. So there were like three drivers, my dad, Lorenzen, and another guy, and they were all out there driving. There's a Hot Rod Magazine article on it somewhere. It's interesting. So that was the trend towards fastback. And for some reason, some of the engineers at Ford during the 60s thought that the notchback cars were faster based on data of the wind tunnels and stuff. And my dad was like, you know, you really need to go to the fastback because they're faster. So they built, uh, you know, some of the prototypes and figured out, wow, you know, they can't, they brought both cars down to Daytona or something, ran. They said, oh, well, you know, one of them's two or three miles an hour faster. So we got to go that direction. So they had gone towards the fastback Mustangs in, you know, 67, 68. And then the Torinos, they went to the, the first one, I guess, was 68. And then they stepped it up in 69. Uh, they wanted to make it a little faster, and they that's when late latter half of 68, Holy was starting to develop the front end for the Talladega and extending the nose and narrowing everything and moving out the airlines and closing up gaps. So there's a lot of special work that's done up at the front end of those to, uh, to make it look uh, more aerodynamic and faster, So it, and which it was. What was interesting is right after that, Chrysler came out, of course, with the Superbird, which was more recognizable because of the wing. But in the competitions, uh, the Talladega won many more races than either the Superbird or the, the Daytona and the Superbird. They won races, absolutely, but they didn't win as many as the Talladega. Now, your particular Torino Talladega is an amazing surviving piece of automotive racing history. But, but I'm really curious here. What happened to the car in between it being used as a template for the NASCAR race cars and now being on a restoration rotisserie in your shop. Well, you know, it was on the, on the uh, surface plate as a shell, you know, and that was primarily for the template. So it really didn't have, you know, the assembly wasn't there. So he took it off. They put it all together as a street car and he kept it. And so it was a family car. It was in our garage. My grandmother drove it. And believe it or not, she'd go to the grocery store in it and say, man, this is great because it'll move. <laughs> but, you know, so it stayed in the family for its entire life. I drove it a little bit in high school and I drove it uh, a year or so in college. And then we decided, I was talking to my dad and I said, I'm, I'm just going to buy a car. I'm afraid, you know, something might happen to this, you know, never know where it is. So we kind of put it in, in storage in, in his garage in Charlotte carport that he had there. And, and he would turn it on once in a while, but it really kind of sat. They had other cars and it just kind of sat in the, in the carport for the last, I would say from, I think the late, the early eighties through the nineties, it just kind of sat there. At any rate, long story short, we decided to dis- to uh, disassemble it and start doing uh, a restoration on it. This was probably late 90s. We had a friend of ours in Charlotte who had a body shop that did truck work. They had uh, painting staff and developers booth the whole nine yards. And we started over there, disassembled the car, put everything up on a rack, parts off of it, took the engine out, got the guy to start working on the engine. We had uh, the car uh, blasted. They put it in primer. And about that time, the particular business there went into bankruptcy and I had to go rescue it. So the engine wasn't in trouble because it was over at the engine shop, but everything else, it was on the shelf in the car. I went and grabbed it one weekend and got some trailers and stuff. And we hauled it up and put it in my, my house garage, you know. At that time, I was traveling all over the world for my work. So I didn't have time to really do much work on it. 
So it sat there for another eight years, you know, so it's been in like 18 years in progress. It's partially done. And then really kind of what kicked things off was uh, when we finally got to COVID, I couldn't travel. So I was home. So bought some more equipment and started working on it. And then I found a guy locally that Steve Paxton, who was all in racing for years, he got on the bandwagon. We got with him to start painting it. And then he, he had some, uh, his wife had some medical problems in the past. And so he had to shut down his shop for a little bit. He had a guy wanting to use his shop, Brian Cram, who had done some work at the garage shop up north of Mooresville. And they built a, um, a Superbird and a, a 71 Isaac car. And they built a Talladega to go run at Bonneville. Uh, of course, they had modern Ford and modern engines in them. They ran over 200 miles an hour, both of them. Yeah, yeah, we know the garage shop. We actually had uh, Aaron Brown on a podcast episode about a year or so ago. And yeah, those folks know how to make a car look really good and go really, really fast. Brian was working for that shop. He's worked all over and he's worked for DEI. He's worked for a bunch of race teams over the years. So he saw the car in the shop and said, what is that? And, and of course, Steve told him, no, that's the Ralph Moody prototype. He said, oh man, can I work on that? So they worked out a deal and he's been working on it for the last year and it's been on a rotisserie. So He's got it uh, just about finished primer. It's in a, an epoxy primer. The next step is it's coming back here. I've got all the running gear and everything ready to bolt on it. So we'll start reassembling it and then take it back over for final paint after we get all the, the hardware back on it. So it sounds like to me anyway, um, you already had a pretty good idea that this wasn't just a run-of-the-mill Torino Talladega. This was a, a very special car. We, we knew it was special. And of course, Richard Fleetner, because I registered it in his, and he called me up and he's like, man, you got to, you got to fix this thing up. You know, it's, it's sitting here for so many years. He was bugging me for a couple of years. And I said, yeah, I'm going to get to it. Don't worry. I'll, I'll have it done. You know, it's, it has a lot of prominence. It has a lot of family prominence because it's been in the family its entire life. It's uh, never been out of the family. So we have a lot of, uh, emotional attachment to it, number one. Number two, it does have some provenance in terms of its signature. It's one of the few prototypes from that era. It's numbers matching car, which is probably unusual, but maybe not so much for the for prototypes, but it's kind of nice to be able to say that. So, Yeah, that, that is an interesting point you bring up. And just for clarification, was it always that way? Was that the original drivetrain that got dropped back in when your dad decided to convert it back into a streetcar in the early 70s? The body serial number and the engine serial number match. Yeah, they are uh, they're original. So what the engine that went in the car, now how it got there that way, you know, knowing that my dad got the engine from Dearborn and it went in the car that came from Atlanta. You know, Ford did a lot of things back then with the race teams that maybe they don't do today, but it was the same engine that had been in the car forever. So as you're taking the car apart, as you're taking it down to steel, um, are you discovering any weird, odd, or peculiar things about the car given its prototype status? Well, yeah, we we were we got it up on a rotisserie. We were working on the the right side heater cord leak sometime in the past, and it had some rust on the right side floor pan. So we cut the floor pan out, put some bracing in, did all that. And as we got it up on the rotisserie, one of the signature things about the Talladegas is they have to re-roll the rocker. So basically, that purpose was to raise the uh, the rocker panel so they could lower the car. The original body that came out of Atlanta didn't have that. It wasn't a Talladega. It was a Torino. So they, they sawed all that apart and then re-rolled it and put it back together. And there's still pop rivets in that. And we're leaving those pop rivets. But there was one section where they had cut with a sawzall that they never welded back. So there was a piece up there, the front, right front fender, 
where they had sawed it and hand welded it. And I'm like, man, it's amazing, you know, that it drove all these miles and it didn't crack open. But so we did weld that back up. But the uh, the pop rivets are still there where they had fashioned the re-rolled rockers back on. So they basically split the weld on the bottom and re-rolled them and then pop, pop rivets to hold it in place when they did the final welding. Well, it's certainly good that the uh, car stayed predominantly in the south. I'm imagining if that car spent much time up north, you'd be welding rust. Which leads me to the question, did you find any significant rust, corrosion, or damage, anything like that? The only rust we found in that car was just maybe a quarter-sized spot behind the rear tires, or you know, just where you see, you know, the weep holes were plugged and it got a little rust in the inside of the fender, but very, very minimal. So we did repair all that. So on a similar note, as you're going through this restoration, seeing as the car is in such reasonably good shape before you really started taking it apart, are you finding yourself running into uh, difficulty finding any original unique parts that were specialized for this prototype Torino Talladega? You know, the, the, the specialty things on this car are all around the, the sheet metal in the front end. Of course, that was all intact and original, so and, and nothing was rusted. So that was great. We were able to, to clean it up and, and re-epoxy paint it and everything. I think probably some of the odd things about it are its window of build. In late 68, uh, there's been about three things that I've really struggled to find, which we did. Number one was the brake booster. Uh, the brake booster is a midland booster, which has a clamp on it as opposed to a crimped thing. And apparently everybody in the world I talked to, because I went looking for one, they're like, you're lucky if you ever find one. I found one on eBay, the guy I had taken out of a 68 Torino. And uh, I sent it out to uh, Booster Dave out in Oregon, wherever he is out west, and he rebuilt it and got it back to me. So uh, I have a new booster in it. So the the old one, of course, had deteriorated the rubber and everything. Uh, it had gotten lost in the transition, and we had another one, but the other one was not the right uh, bolt pattern. So we had to find a booster for it. Power steering hoses uh, on the 428 cover jets, those are handmade. You know, you just don't buy those off the shelf. So those were were hard to find. Um, it's got, it's interesting, it's two, the car has power steering, air conditioning, so it's got tons of hardware on the front of the engine. <laughs> so it's a, it's a heavy block of metal to put in the front of the car. The fact that you have that many original parts back on the car is just amazing. And the car itself, it, like we talked about it earlier, it, it's a surviving piece of automotive racing history. Yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating story of the, the history of it, you know, and, and basically the, the only reason it was built is to go faster on the racetrack. You know, that that was uh, the same as the Superbird, and that was the intent was to, to, to beat the, the other competition. So then they built, uh, I think the registry says there were 754 built. And I remember my dad saying he didn't think they ever built more than 500. As a matter of fact, when they were homologating the car, they brought Bill France out to this uh, elevated platform with glass, and they had like a a barn with where they could drive the, the cars through and they recycled a few of the cars to get the count number to 500. So that was at the time when they hadn't built that many. So at the time, I think they may have built three or 400, but they ended up counting at least 500 so they could go race them. But according to the paper records and there may be actually, they may have built over 500, but we don't know for sure. People that can answer that question better than I can, but my dad was like, no, nah, we didn't build that many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How many do you need us to build? And as long as there are no follow-up questions, we will show you exactly that many cars. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure. You know, I, I can't I can't argue that point. <laughs> I'm not the historian there. <laughs> so you said uh, the body's on a rotisserie now um, in primer, ready for paint? Yeah, it it's, uh, should be finished next month uh, with all the primer on it. 
And then we're going to assemble the hardware and then go back for final paint. So in case we get a few scratches, add things in. Yep. Now, once you get it all painted and reassembled, uh, what are you going to do with the car? Oh, I'm sure I'm going to take it to a few shows, especially the uh, Talladega Registry does uh, at least one or two events a year. And they've been bugging me for years to bring it, you know, so definitely get it out for that. And uh, cruise around in town and we, you know, it's it was a a driver in a family for years and we'll still continue to drive it a little bit. Of course, you know, I'm not going to take cross country in it, but we'll trailer it somewhere to to show it. So uh, it's it's a fun car to drive. It's, uh, you know, you think about these cars as uh, super high performance and all that. But they are heavy, so they ride pretty good. You know, they're actually, even with the older suspension, leaf springs and everything, they're, they're not a bad vehicle to ride around. And yeah, yeah, you've already kind of proved that. Um, didn't you say that after your dad put it back together in the early 70s, you used it as like a daily driver commuter car for several years? Uh, I drove it for like three or four years. Um, and then that's kind of when it kind of sat in his garage, probably late 70s from there on out. He drove it a little bit in the 70s, late 70s, and I had bought another car by then because I was afraid of this thing getting damaged. And so it sat around, and I think the last license tag we had on it was 1981. So I don't believe it was tagged and titled. Or it had a title. It didn't have a tag on it since 1981. Now, in addition to being a gearhead, you said earlier that you're a mechanical engineer by trade. Yes. Uh-huh. Which makes me ask the question, um, what's your favorite part of a restoration job like this? You know, I, I was kind of trained in the engine shop and my dad's shops and machining and things like that. So I, I enjoy that part of it. Suspension is a lot of fun because, you know, when I was building race cars and stuff for my own, you know, I, I, my dad taught me a lot about setting up suspensions on the car and things like that. And back then, um, you know, in the in the 70s, uh, leaf suspensions on the rear cars were pretty prominent. So there's tweaks and trips to that, which this car had. So, uh, you know, I was in the shop ending weeks fixing, the, you know, re- refurbishing the rear springs for it rather than replacing them in. You know, they've been sitting for 40 years, so they needed some work, but they, they look good. So things like that were fun, uh, you know, the gears and all that put it together. Body work, I've done a little bit, but I'm not, I, I will say there are people better than me for body work, which what I found, Brian and, and Steve, you know, these guys are perfectionists, you know, this is uh, something they've, they've done for 40 years. So they're really, really good. So from that aspect, uh, I can't, I can't compete with that. <laughs> now we've touched on this topic a little bit already, but uh, I want to ask to be more specific. You're restoring this car to the way it would have appeared in the early 70s. You know, you told us about sourcing the original uh, booster assembly. Are you doing any sort of modern upgrades to update it to the 21st century, or are you trying to keep it period correct? No, I've gone back as much original as I can. We've used uh, almost all the original parts on it. Of course, the engine transmission, spindles and all that are the same. Of course, it's got new discs on the front and new drums on the back because they were worn out, but... uh, Everything, all the components, drive shaft, everything are original. The I think I've had to replace the wiper motor, probably the wiper arms because they were rusted. But you know, as much as we could, all the original components are on it. All sheet metal. All I have all the glass too, and we've uh, ceramic ground ground most of the glass. There's a few minor scratches, so it's 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 more driver quality. We're not trying to go for super super the other than the body, but uh, I had to reach out to a company in the Midwest somewhere that does uh, cloth for the seats. So it has like a taxi cab interior, like most of the Talladega's had this uh, cloth and um, vinyl package. Uh, That was hard to find, but there's a company that reproduces all those out out West and we got all that. Got a guy starting on that to do the seats. Some of the items like that were, when we talked about earlier about hard to to find, those were, you know, I was a worry, where am I going to find the 1969? This company makes 1912 Rolls Royce cloth, you know, 
not cheap, but you can buy whatever you need, you know. So from that aspect, it's, we've tried to go back original. I haven't added any gauges or anything in it other than what came in it. So I'm trying to keep it as original as possible. We've had to replace some items, but as little as possible. If we could refurbish it, we put it back on. So we've been talking for about a half hour now. Um, are there any interesting tidbits or, or details about the car that you, you think uh, folks should know about? You know, I don't know. Well, I, I can tell you this car in its early life, uh, I guess after it became a street car, uh, it did end up in Daytona one year. Uh, my dad drove it down there just for, uh, you know, show it off or whatever. He, for whatever reason, he drove it down there. I know it's been on radar on the backstretch of Daytona at 155. So unlike the stock Talladegas, this thing has a 3.0 rear end in it. So it's, it can go a little bit faster. It still has the uh, 14 inch wheels. Interestingly enough, it has Mercury Cougar wheels on it. I don't know why it always had them. And so that was unusual. So that's a the Mercury man head in the center caps on the, on, on the wheels. And they were the argent gray with the silver trim. And I don't know how they got on the car, but like I say, it was assembled at Homeland Moody, so whatever parts and pieces they came up with that were Ford or Mercury, they, they ended up sticking on there. So that's that's rather a unique uh, signature of this car. People joke about that as why has it got Mercury wheels? I said, well, it, it came from it came that way. And that's one of the things you got to love about an old race shop. It's function over form all of the time. Right. You know, when you, you talk about, you know, what was the undercoating and this and that and the other, these guys painted race cars, you know, you know, whatever it was black, you know, the whole thing is black, you know, doesn't matter because that's, that's what was in the gun when it was time to paint it. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to touch on, because it's coming to clear to me as our conversation progresses, you're throwing out a lot of names here. It sounds to me like this Talladega restoration project truly is like a community effort. We live in Mooresville, which is, is great being around a bunch of racing community. I've got neighbors that were in NASCAR that were crew chiefs and stuff. And so they've been over, you know, helping. And my neighbor down the street comes over and helps weld once in a while. He'll bring his welder down. And, and uh, Tommy Morgan, he's been in several different race teams. Fantastic guy. Uh, he's in his 70s now, but he's spry as ever. So, you know, it's interesting the people that are around this area that have so much talent and they're semi-retired and they're always doing something, you know, it's, it's amazing. So there's some, some advantages to living here and having access to those types of things. Great to be in this area, to be working on this thing, because uh, there's always somebody that knows something that you don't. Well, uh, do you have any final thoughts uh, about the car and about the project? It's been a, it's a, uh, object of desire or whatever, you know, you want to preserve the legacy and, and, and keep it. And uh, it's something I've been looking forward to for a number of years to get finished. So I'll be happy when it is back on the road. <laughs> and and what a fantastic sentiment to end on, because that truly is a rolling piece of automotive racing history. And it's obviously way more significant for you, given the family connection. With that, Ralph, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us all about uh, your Torino Talladega project and more importantly, your family's history, because it really is an amazing story and a true example of like the American dream. So good luck as the project progresses and keep us posted because we want to see the pictures of this beast when it's finally back on the road. Absolutely. Uh, Happy to share. This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.